Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. At the time of recording this, I have seen the first two episodes of season two, which I thought were absolutely terrific in quite different ways from each other. It's the same show that we love. They haven't reinvented it or anything like that, but there has been a significant shift forward in the story, one that makes complete sense in terms of where we end up at the end of season one. So it's all very exciting. Shooting has just ended on season two. Uh, They were filming right into the early hours of the morning on the last day of shooting. I guess that's not so unusual, but still. I'm sure they're going to be editing right up to the broadcast date for the last episode. The UK broadcast is confirmed for Wednesday, April 4th at 9pm on E4. That's about four weeks after the US broadcast for episode one. I think that's a really good time slot for it, and I can't wait to watch it in HD. Obviously not going to say too much about Season 2 yet. Right now I need to wind back a few episodes and continue with my thoughts about Season 1. Actually before I do that there's a couple of other pieces of news. Uh, One is some UK news that Sci-Fi Channel have picked up the TV show Runaways, which includes Annie Wershing in the cast. So all those Annie Wershing fans can look forward to that. The first episode will be broadcast on the 18th of April. And the other fantastic news is that a timeless soundtrack CD is on the way. I'm really happy about this. I've enthused about Robert Duncan's music for the series before on this podcast. So I'll be grabbing a copy of that when it comes out on May the 4th. Star Wars Day. Okay, on with the podcast. This time I'm talking about Season 1, Episode 14... The Lost Generation. Timeless Season 1 was originally planned as 13 episodes and then was extended to 16. So here we are at episode 14 and this kind of hinterland extension to the season. I have no idea whether this is all additional story at this point beyond what was originally planned, or if elements of the story were delayed to episode 16, but it certainly feels like a seamless continuation. The episode starts exactly where the last episode ended, with Lucy having confronted Benjamin Cahill. He tells her that she's taking it a lot better than he did when he was first told about Rittenhouse. He was 17 when his father told him about Rittenhouse and it took him a long time to come to grips with the responsibility. He says his father, Ethan Cahill, ran away when he was told. He says Lucy will come around because it's who she is, it's her legacy. She asks him to please stop behaving like he cares about her. This is a man who has never contacted her her whole life. He says he's sorry there is so much craziness that she's engaged to a man she doesn't know that her sister Amy is gone. It's quite creepy that he knows all of this. Lucy angrily tells him he doesn't get to say Amy's name. He asks what she knows about Rittenhouse. She says she went to 1780 and met David Rittenhouse himself. Cahill says Rittenhouse has evolved since then. He says when she's inside she'll see the good they do. She says she'll never be a part of this, and she will stop them. He says Rittenhouse isn't a choice, it's blood. He even says that someday her kids will be part of Rittenhouse too. 
which is a mistake I think because in a way that is a threat to her children and even though she doesn't have any as yet there's nothing more fiercely protective than a mother he says when she's ready she'll come home and he'll be waiting for her with open arms but she leaves it's all very vague still about what Rittenhouse does in the world apart from threaten people and look out for its own this mention of Ethan Cahill, Benjamin's father, is significant though. We're going to see more of him before the end of the season. We cut to Wyatt Logan. He of course is under arrest for having stolen the time machine in the previous episode. A bag is pulled off his head, which seems like he's being treated unnecessarily badly. It's no surprise that he would face charges though. Wyatt demonstrates that he's smart enough to figure out where he's being held anyway. Sitting across from him is Agent Christopher. She says, effectively, that because the time machines are a secret, she can't exactly put him in open court accused of stealing one. Hence why he's being held secretly for the time being. She says she's seriously pissed at him, but she's arranged a good lawyer for him. He says he doesn't want a defence, he deserves this. For the time being, at least, he's in a very resigned, defeated frame of mind. Agent Christopher walks out. It's safe to say she's not very impressed with him. Next we cut to Carol and Lucy Preston. Carol is aware that Lucy has met with Benjamin, but she doesn't know any of the details. She asks if Cahill said something to upset Lucy. Lucy says she just wants to know more about him. Carol says he was opinionated and stubborn, and she sees a lot of him in Lucy, which is a catty sort of comment. Carol continues to sound impatient at being asked to talk about Cahill. Lucy asks about his family. Carol says she met his parents once. His father was an aide in the White House. So that gives us a bit more information about Ethan Cahill. On the face of it, it's a bit concerning that a Cahill was an aide in the White House. Carol says the best thing about Benjamin Cahill is that he gave her Lucy. In retrospect, it's fascinating to look again at any of the scenes Carol Preston is in. But I'll talk more about that another time. Next we see Lucy, Agent Christopher and Rufus together. They have this um, secret meeting place that they go to when they need to be alone to talk openly with each other. We see it a few times in this episode. We know that Rufus has opened up to Agent Christopher about the way he's been threatened by Rittenhouse and she's been surveilling Benjamin Cahill. Rufus has obviously just been told that Benjamin Cahill is Lucy's father and it's safe to say that he's shocked about that. Christopher tells Lucy she shouldn't have gone to see Cahill, that it was a dangerous thing to do. But she says Cahill has a completely clean record He's a paediatric surgeon, of all things. Rufus eventually calms down and starts to realise how upset Lucy must be. After all, Lucy's only just discovered all of this herself. Christopher says this will all have to wait. Garcia Flynn has jumped to May 21st, 1927. Lucy recognises this as the day that Charles Lindbergh lands in Paris after the first transatlantic solo flight but she says she can't go on another mission right now. Agent Christopher says she has to go, or otherwise let Flynn torch history. 
Lucy wonders if that might be the best thing. They know Rittenhouse is terrible, that they want to do terrible things in history. We know this because Anthony Brawl said so. He talks about Rittenhouse's plans to attack key moments in time, remake history in line with their own agenda. So Lucy is thinking maybe they should just let Flynn take them out. But it's Rufus who now says, look, Rittenhouse are bad, he wants them gone, but Flynn is going to kill people, and if they do nothing to stop it, then it's going to be on them. Rufus says he'll go alone if he has to, which is crazy talk, but good on him. So Lucy is persuaded and agrees to go with him, but they won't be going alone. Rufus does attempt to say they need Wyatt to go with them, but Agent Christopher says there is zero chance of that. They're introduced to Master Sergeant David Baumgardner. They might not have met him before, but we have. He was introduced in Episode 5 as the man who Agent Christopher's bosses wanted to bring in to replace Wyatt. That didn't happen then, but it's happening now. Rufus and Lucy are fairly accepting of Baumgardner. His nickname is Bam Bam. Lucy tells him not to be a cowboy. He calls her Ma'am, which I think she is prickly about, but she lets it go. He tells her she is in charge. She says that's right, and they head into the time machine. Next we see Flynn and Emma. They're in a field. They're talking about Napoleon for no particular reason. Well, they are in France. Emma says she met him, that the Wild West wasn't her first trip. We get these little pieces of information that just start to flesh out our knowledge of who she is a bit more. Flynn is reading Lucy's journal again. Emma asks what it is. Flynn doesn't tell her. He says it's not worth getting into at that moment. The initials LP are on the cover. But there's no reason for Emma to know that LP stands for Lucy Preston. No reason that we know of, anyway. A third man with them is setting up a missile launcher while smoking a cigarette, which seems a bit hazardous. They hear a plane approaching, then see it. Emma asks if Flynn is sure he's not going to kill the pilot. He says he has the accuracy to cripple the rudder and bring the plane down early, which is all he wants to do. We see the name on the plane, the Spirit of St. Louis. Which, if you're up on your history, you'll know was the plane that Charles Lindbergh was flying. We get a spectacular effect sequence as the missile launches, strikes the plane, and then it crash lands. Emma looks like she really enjoyed seeing this happen. Which might be a clue that she's not quite the woman she first appeared to be, who hid away for ten years in fear of Rittenhouse. Charles Lindbergh staggers away from the wreckage nursing an injured arm and straight into the clutches of Flynn and co. Lucy, Rufus and Bam Bam have arrived in 1927. Lucy says Lindbergh was a nice boy from St. Louis, but ten years from now would become a Nazi sympathiser, paranoid and anti-Semitic. Timeless as a show tends to select people like this from history as being members of Rittenhouse, or having links to Rittenhouse at least. So I guess that tells us something about the kinds of things that Rittenhouse stands for. None of it good. 
They ask someone for directions to the landing site and discover the plane crashed miles short. So they go to the crash site. Baumgardner identifies tyre tracks leading away from the site and the likely scenario of the plane having been brought down. And he thinks Lindbergh is still alive. His thoughts are overheard by a reporter who introduces himself as Ernest Hemingway. Lucy is delighted to meet Hemingway, of course. Baumgardner finds the cigarette butt that Flynn's man was smoking. He passes it to Hemingway, who says it's a Havana tobacco, a type you would only find in one specific district of Paris. Hemingway offers to take them there in exchange for the scoop on the story. The story being that maybe Lindbergh is actually still alive. So next we see them enter a bar, the Dingo Bar, as we're told later, which was famously popular with celebrities of the time. It's the middle of the night. Hemingway says it's the only place that's open, but it's the only place that matters. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is co-written by Kent Rotherham and David Hoffman. It's clear that the writing of Timeless is generally a very collaborative process, as is most American TV, with the whole of the writing room involved in working out the general scope of each episode and the beats of the story. These two have actually had regular credits through the season. Kent Rotherham is credited as staff writer and David Hoffman as consultant. He's the history expert on the team, I believe. In terms of actual episode writing credits, uh, Kent previously wrote the Watergate tape episode uh, and this is David's first credit as a writer. The next episode of Timeless was also credited to two writers, so I think in a very real sense you have the whole of the writing team coming together to bring the first season to a conclusion now. And on the directing front, this episode is directed by Craig Zisk, who previously directed episode 11, which was the World's Columbian Exposition episode. <laughs> So Hemingway tells them if anyone will know the whereabouts of the people they're looking for, then Josie will know. And both Rufus and Lucy realise he means Josephine Baker, who happens to be on stage in front of them at that moment. Baumgardner has no idea who she is, which gives Lucy a reason to explain. Rufus says there was a record cover of hers that got him through some lonely nights. The look Lucy gives him says that's way too much information. Meanwhile, Agent Christopher arrives back at Mason Industries and finds it full of people she doesn't know. She asks Gia what's going on, and Gia points out a man talking to Connor Mason, who claims to be in charge now. She goes up to talk to him, Mason leaves them alone. The man introduces himself as Jake Neville from the NSA and shows her ID and a letter of authorization. She's told that the NSA have taken over the project command. Following Wyatt's theft of the time machine, she's told the project needs fresh eyes on it. She's told that Homeland Security are waiting to reassign her and she's asked to surrender her pass to the facility. 
and two guards appear at the door ready to escort her off the premises. It certainly seems like a brutal end to Agent Christopher's service here. She isn't debriefed or asked for any advice or anything. She's just told to leave. I think as fans of the show, we love this set so much. It's quite jarring to see these unfamiliar people walking around, apparently having taken over. Back in Paris, Josephine is shown photos of Flynn and Emma. She says she hasn't seen them, but she will ask around. Rufus is still acting a bit starstruck around her, and she's a bit flirty with him. Rufus asks Lucy not to mention any of this to Gia. Lucy indicates that his secret's safe with her, without necessarily approving. There's a lot of smart dialogue in this episode. Lucy and Rufus are both the same age, in their mid-thirties. It's really refreshing to see characters... um, at this age, leading a show like this. A lot of TV series seem to star very young actors. It's a lot more interesting, to me anyway, to see characters who have a bit more life experience behind them. We cut to Flynn next. It seems Lindbergh has dislocated his shoulder. Flynn says they need some painkillers for him. He tells the other guy with him to go find some absinthe or something. Emma turns to go with him. She says she's going to the dingo bar. She's not going to miss the chance to meet Picasso. Flynn is certainly giving her a lot of freedom. He's not telling her what she can and can't do. Lucy happens to be looking at Picasso at that moment, which means we're set up for Emma to walk into the bar at some point. Josephine Baker sees Lucy looking at Picasso, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda Fitzgerald. She says Hemingway calls them the lost generation. Lucy says she can understand that. They're confused, aimless, have seen too much violence and don't know what's right or wrong anymore. Josephine says it sounds like Lucy is not just talking about them. Lucy says she was a teacher She loved the research, the facts. Facts could be relied upon, but that's not true anymore. She feels like she's standing on quicksand. Josephine says she's wrong about one thing. When Hemingway calls them the lost generation, he doesn't mean aimless. He means battered, but getting ready to stand up again. Lucy says she likes that. Josephine says she likes Lucy, which makes her laugh. Agent Christopher is back talking to Wyatt. I'm not sure if I find this surprising or not. On the one hand, it seems unlikely she'd be keeping him informed about what's going on. On the other hand, she might just be following up on the charges against him. And you could say it shows that deep down she still trusts him and values his insight on things. Also, it might indicate that she's not okay with what's just happened at Mason Industries. Wyatt certainly thinks something is off. He says it would be difficult to get so many men cleared to enter the Mason Industries facility. Overnight, if this is in response to his actions in stealing the time machine. He says not all takeovers are hostile. He recalls a tactic he once used, where his team initially went into a village as peacekeepers. They painted schools, built wells, and by the time the enemy realised they'd taken control... 
There was nothing they could do about it. He says this takeover at Mason Industries had to have been planned for weeks, meaning this is a coup. Back in Paris, Hemingway is more interested in having a drink than continuing the search. But then Josephine hears that the man they're looking for was seen going into a shabby old chateau. At that same moment, Baumgardner sees Emma Whitmore buying a bottle at the bar. She immediately leaves and Baumgardner, Lucy and Rufus give chase to an alley outside. The man with Emma sees them and starts firing an automatic weapon. Lucy looks at the gun Baumgardner has brought and says, what's that? He has a period pistol because he was told not to bring anything modern with him from 2017. Lucy says he was supposed to ignore that rule. It doesn't stop him from going out firing at the two they're chasing, though. He clips the man, but he turns back and fires again, and he and Emma get away. Lucy and Rufus come out of hiding, but find that Baumgardner has been shot and killed. I have to say I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, it establishes that these missions are dangerous. If there is a lot of gunfire and no one ever gets killed, then at some point you stop engaging with the drama thinking that everything will always be alright in the end, and nothing really bad will ever actually happen. So on that level I kind of approve, but on the other hand, Baumgardner was obviously expendable, and it's a bit of a storytelling cliché to bring in a guest star as a stand-in for one of the regulars and then kill them off. On the whole, I think I would have preferred a different fate for Dave Baumgardner. Lucy and Rufus had no option but to leave Baumgardner behind. I think it just wasn't possible to get the body back to the lifeboat, no matter how much they might have wanted to. And they couldn't risk being arrested as suspects in his death. Hemingway is still drinking. He offers to take the vacant place of soldier on the team. Lucy says absolutely not. She obviously wouldn't want Hemingway to get shot. He's only published one novel at this point, and it would be a big change to history if he didn't write the others. He says he fought in the Great War. She says he was an ambulance driver. And he's had way too much to drink. But he's not taking no for an answer. They have an address. What are they waiting for? So he goes with them to the deserted chateau that we were told about. Hemingway suddenly announces he's going to be ill, from the drinking, presumably. Lucy and Rufus debate who should take him outside. Rufus agrees to go with him, leaving Lucy alone in the house, which is never going to end well. Back at Mason Industries, Benjamin Cahill now has access to the facility, apparently. Connor Mason speaks to him and says it is rather jarring to see Cahill there so openly. He's got a point. We've been told that Cahill is supposedly a paediatric surgeon. So on that basis, he has absolutely no reason to be there. So it's safe to assume Rittenhouse now have complete control of the facility. What they don't have is the time machine. Yet. Mason asks Cahill if he will tell him now why Lucy Preston is so important to him. He reveals that Lucy is his daughter. And Mason looks surprised and utterly appalled. It's been very unclear whether Mason is a willing ally to Rittenhouse, 
I think this is a big clue that Mason really isn't comfortable at all with the situation he's in. Rufus and Hemingway come back into the chateau and discover that Lucy has vanished. We cut to her being dragged down a cave-like tunnel by Flynn's man and brought to Flynn. She makes it clear how angry she is about Baumgardner's death. And she says she realises now that Flynn knew who her father was. It's why he told her, way back in the pilot, to ask why she was chosen for the team. She asks where Lindbergh is. Flynn tells her Lindbergh is with Rittenhouse. She tells Flynn it's not right to kill Lindbergh, that she will persuade him to leave Rittenhouse. Flynn doesn't think she'll be able to do that, but he agrees to let her try. So she's taken in to meet him, and the two are left alone. Lindbergh wants to know what Flynn wants with them. She says she knows he's with Rittenhouse. She is too. She's part of the Cahill family. He recognises the name and says they're a pure-blood family, very well respected. He says that his father wants him to say terrible things about all sorts of people. It's all just a distraction so that no one knows who's really in control. Lucy's trying to build up some kind of rapport with him. She says a couple of years earlier she was offered a professor job at a small college in Ohio. It was her dream job, but her mother would have been devastated if she'd left the job at Stanford. There's an interesting comment that her sister Amy always encouraged her to stand up to her mother. But Lucy did what her mother wanted and stayed at Stanford. And her sister Amy was so disappointed in her. She tells Lindbergh nobody gets to decide their futures except them. That's what Amy would have said. And he looks like he really wants to believe that. Rufus and Hemingway have searched the chateau and they can't find Lucy. Rufus feels like he's completely alone. In the last two days he's had to ID Brule, who was his mentor. Wyatt has been arrested after failing to save his wife. Baumgardner has been killed and now Lucy has disappeared, probably kidnapped. Hemingway asks if he's ever been in a war. He talks about all the people who've died, millions of them buried in the catacombs beneath Paris. He says it nearly broke him. But you have to live on behalf of all those who can't. Rufus can either stand there like a corpse or he can be a man and fight. Rufus says he might not have fought in the Great War, but he lists off some of the missions he's been on since he first stepped into the time machine. And he says that he has fought, which is exactly the sort of fire that Hemingway wants from him. In their joint excitement, Rufus manages to drop the bottle of booze Hemingway's been trying to get him to drink from. The liquid drains away through the floorboards, and Rufus realises that Flynn could be in the catacombs below. We cut back to Lucy and Lindbergh. He says it's nice to think about separating himself from Rittenhouse, but family is family, blood is blood. 
He tells her that after he landed, he was supposed to call a Mr. Charvet, and Rittenhouse would handle the rest. We switch to Flynn and discover he has the room bugged and is listening to the conversation. Emma says Julian Charvet is the owner of one of the largest car companies in Europe and apparently another member of Rittenhouse. Emma is impressed that Flynn has used Lucy to get Lindbergh talking. He tells her to keep listening and he leaves. Things are moving forward between Agent Christopher and Wyatt. He's still handcuffed and chained, but she shows him a photo of a limousine and says she's seen the license plate before, then shows him a photo of Cahill at Mason Industries. She explains to Wyatt that Cahill is the man who Mason has been meeting secretly, also the man who's been threatening Rufus, also Lucy's biological father. This is all news to Wyatt. Rittenhouse are getting more and more brazen. They have control of Mason Industries, control of the lifeboat, and control of Rufus and Lucy. She shows him the confession he's supposed to sign. She says he can do that, or he can fight this. He should think about what Rufus and Lucy are coming back to. He's still got this attitude that he's guilty, and he let them down, he let Jessica down. Either Flynn lied to him about who killed Jessica, or fate wanted her dead anyway. And the universe, or God, wanted the one person he loves the most in the world to be dead. Agent Christopher says, maybe the universe is saying there's something else you have to do first. Maybe you're supposed to be helping your friends. But he says, well, how am I supposed to do that now? She takes back the confession form, accidentally on purpose leaving behind a paper clip, and she leaves the room. Flynn has tracked down this Charvet and tells him they have a lot to talk about. I have the distinct impression this won't end well for Charvet, but we don't see that. Rufus and Hemingway are searching the catacombs now and getting nowhere. They try a different tactic. Rufus starts calling out loudly for Lucy. Flynn's man hears him and follows the voice, thinking that Rufus is easy prey. But Hemingway steps out of the shadows and floors him with a good punch. The Hemingway hook. They find Lucy and Lindbergh. There's no sign of Flynn, so they think they can get away. But when they turn to go, Emma is standing in the doorway. This is the first time Rufus has seen Emma since her return. But they know each other. He says it's been a long time. It's good to see her again. She says, you too, Rufus. He has a gun and she doesn't, so he says she can either come with them or she can stand aside and let them go. It's interesting to think that she could have gone with them. With Baumgardner dead, there is a space free in the lifeboat. But we're led to believe she wants to destroy Rittenhouse and therefore she wants to stay with Flynn. There's no reason to doubt it at this point in the story. But is that really what's going on though? Whatever her motives, she steps aside and allows them to leave. Wyatt uses the paperclip to unlock the handcuffs and free himself. There's some kind of electrical junction box in the room. He breaks the cover off and uses the paperclip to create a short and cut power to the room. 
maybe the entire building. There are alarms sounding. One of the guards enters the room to check on him. He knocks the guard out and makes his escape. Lucy and Rufus leave Lindbergh with Josephine Baker, expecting that he will go live a quiet life somewhere, away from his family, away from Rittenhouse. In theory, Hemingway's involvement here has been as a reporter. But Rufus tells Hemingway he can't tell this story because it will ruin everything for Lindbergh. He understands this. Following up on their earlier conversation, Rufus promises to drink and fight and screw for everyone who can't. Then asks Lucy not to mention this to Gia either. They travel back to Mason Industries and climb out of the lifeboat and they are shocked to find Jake Neville in charge and so many unfamiliar faces present. At first they think they've changed history to cause this, which is a reasonable assumption. But they see Gia and Mason and Neville introduces himself as Agent Christopher's replacement. They have a debriefing with him, which is a more severe interrogation than they're used to. Afterwards, he says they're free to go, and Rufus asks if they weren't free to go before. Then we shift to a little while later, with Lucy at home, studying some history books. She discovers that nothing has changed regarding Charles Lindbergh. His plane crashed and he disappeared for a few weeks but then he reappeared and carried on as per the original history. She discusses Lindbergh with her mother, who says that he had money, adoration, power. Not easy to walk away from a family like that. Lucy gets a message on her phone and is about to leave when her mother says she knows Lucy is going through a tough time after meeting with her father. And what do they do in their family when they go through tough times? when they need to collect their thoughts. Lucy says we write them down. Carol hands Lucy a box and inside is the journal. The journal, the one that Flynn has containing Lucy's writing from the future. Right now, the pages are empty, but this is a big moment for Lucy. It shows that time and history are trying to take her down this path. Next, at the secret meeting place they have, Lucy, Rufus and Agent Christopher are meeting and they're joined by Wyatt. Newly escaped, Lucy hugs him. Agent Christopher explains to them that the agents at Mason Industries are Rittenhouse. So Rufus is worried for Gia's safety. But Wyatt says it will be okay. He says he's been through a lot these last few days. You can call it fate or God or the force, but he is meant to protect Rufus and Lucy. He sees that now. That is what he's meant to do. Lucy says, you realise you sound like a crazy person. And he says, he sounds like her. Rufus wants to know what they are going to do about Rittenhouse. Wyatt says they fight. And Lucy asks, how? And that's the end of the episode. I do 
do like this episode. It has some very funny exchanges between the characters. Maybe some of the best dialogue in any episode of the season. It has some spectacular moments. The dingo bar looks fabulous. And Hemingway and Baker are both a lot of fun in the way they are portrayed. As is Baumgartner, actually. Maybe the episode has a bit too much going on. It seems overly busy to me, with so many elements in one episode. And a lot of the movement of the plot is a bit too convenient. They hook up with Hemingway without any effort at all. He takes them to the dingo bar so they meet Josephine Baker. She gets them the clue to Lindbergh's whereabouts. None of this is particularly earned by Lucy and Rufus. You do get a sense that they're in danger constantly, though. Shame about Baumgardner, but at least he got a starring role for half an episode. All in all, definitely an incredible sense of momentum as we hurtle towards the end of this first season. The fact that Ethan Cahill is mentioned here tells me the writers knew exactly where they were going with this through to the end of the season. So that's another good thing. There's always a still photo from the episode that is used for publicity purposes. The one that you see a lot for this episode shows Rufus holding a microphone as if he's about to sing on stage at the dingo bar. But there's no scene like that in this episode, so I don't know where that image comes from. Maybe it was just a moment that they caught while they were filming. It's a cool photo anyway. So maybe they just couldn't resist using it for publicity for this episode. And that's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing the penultimate episode of the season. Episode 15, Public Enemy Number 1. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timersfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at at Files. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.